Welcome to Corrod Core from Sacred Heart of Jesus Parish in Wadsworth, Ohio, with Father Patrick Schultz and Chris Serger, where we share heart to heart on topics of faith, culture, and life in the church. Perfect. That's someone who's wrestling with it. But all right. Well, we're here. <laughs> we are here. We are here. We've like already recorded a pre-cop podcast before the <laughs> podcast. All right. Well, welcome back, everybody, to Corrod uh, Core. I'm Father Pat Schultz, parochial vicar here at Sacred Heart of Jesus Parish in Wadsworth, Ohio, joined by my good buddy, Chris Serger, just a regular parishioner here. We're not going to use the term that we keep using. Uh, what was that term? I'm, layman. I'm like, layman. <laughs> <laughs> okay, we use it. Okay. Uh, yeah, and um, so we are, what's today? Today's Wednesday. Wednesday, the uh, 10th of March. That Five days from the Ides. Yeah, yeah beware of the Ides mm-hmm. of March. You don't want to be a Caesar on Monday. Oh, man. Yeah. But yeah, we're uh, we're recording this in the third week of Lent, um, cruising along. It's it's halfway halfway through. I think I read somewhere today is the actual midpoint Thank of God. Lent. Thank God. Yeah, I can't which wait. Which is not it. actually forty days, which you know people always like to point out. Yeah, well, you count the not the weekends, mm-hmm. right? Isn't that how that works? I don't know. I think it's the weekdays, or no, weekdays plus Saturday because Sunday is exempted from. The count. We've had 2,000 years to think of. Yeah. I think the church knows <laughs> yeah. why we, we start at... We didn't, like, put Ash Wednesday in the wrong week by accident. Right, right. And then, and then some, like, lackey in Rome got smacked upside the head, like, <laughs> you messed up Lent this year. Do you know it was 47 days, not 40? Oh, gosh, I'm sorry. You made, oh, it, you made it sound like, like, what's that guy from... Uh, inconceivable. I thought you just said... <laughs> from uh, Princess Bride. Yeah. You messed up Lent. <laughs> Oh my gosh! Well, we've been cruising through um, Richard John Newhouse's uh, Father Richard John Newhouse's book, Death on a Friday Afternoon. If you're joining us for the first time, uh, it's a meditation on the seven words of Christ. Um, I I was thinking as I was finishing uh, this the chapter last night to prepare for today. Like I've read a lot of theology books, and I mean this this ranks up there, man. Like you are not joking. Like this is this is. So I can't wait to read um, some of his other ones. Like, what's the one? Uh, uh, Catholic Matters is a really good one. Catholic Matters. What's the the public square one? I'm trying to see it uh, on here. So he he had a column for the 20 years that he ran First Things Magazine called um, the Public Square, which was sort of like his reflection on things going on in the news, and he would sort of have little little. Uh, pithy comments on certain stories, and then he would expound out uh, deeper ideas. But his the book that like put him on the map in 1984, I think, is called The Naked Public Square. Oh. Like That's a term that people actually will use now, yeah. and they don't really even understand where... It came from Richard John Newhouse. He really? was talking about yeah, yes, that this term. complete ripping out of all things tied to faith and religion in the public square, and what this is going to do to the United States. And of course, he's been proven right Oh yeah, so so overwhelmingly. But that phrase, "The Naked Public Square," is his book in 1984. Wow, that's that kind of ties in a little bit, well, quite a bit with with the the chapter that we just finished here. Chapter was it chapter four? Chapter four. Chapter four, the fourth word um, yeah. of the cross from the cross. The title of this chapter is dereliction. Mm-hmm. So this is he's reflecting on those incredibly challenging, difficult words of Christ, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This is a meaty chapter, Chris. Way meaty, and um, 
well, we were texting, we were like, we need, we're going to have to make sure we don't get too deep. Because honestly, and you said it before, of all of the chapters, this is the hardest one for me to really wrap my head around. Yeah. For most people, like, yeah. Jesus, you are God. What do you mean? My yeah. God, my God, why have you forsaken me? There's so much there. Newhouse goes into some philosophy here that's certainly above my pay grade. <laughs> and uh, But uh, this is one that, when you and I were texting, there's an element... And I was, as I was going through this, probably for the fourteenth time that I've read this chapter. Literally. That's nuts. That's awesome. Yeah, just because I read for years, but maybe this is the the most human of all the words from the cross, right? Yeah. Of, of the others, Father, forgive them; they know not what they do. Today you'll be with me in paradise. All of these, they're almost like Jesus is man and God, but a, lo- a lot of the other ones, they, they seem to be coming from like his capacity as God. That's so, yeah. That's spot on. That's so good. Yeah, yeah, and this—I I, I haven't read the "I thirst" chapter yet. I haven't mm. gotten that far. I wonder. That's my favorite. That's your. Oh, mm-hmm. sweet. I, I would imagine that there's got to be something in there that's just like, oh, yeah, I can't wait. But yeah, this this chapter—if uh, you've been reading along with us, and you—if you were reading this, you just like, like felt tempted to just like give up, put it down, and be like, oh, I guess I'm done. Um, <laughs> stay with us. Like we're gonna try and make sense uh, of this chapter as best we can. You know our. Um, I don't know if I don't know if I quite have the pay grade uh, or either. You know? yeah. I mean, I have degrees in philosophy and theology, but there is parts of this where I was just like, "Bro, I don't know what you're saying." You yeah. know? Like, exactly. but like for me, I I kind of enjoy that when I've hit that in theology books. Like, I um, I feel that when I read uh, John Paul II, I feel that when I read uh, Pope Benedict, um, that it's not just like immediately clear, you know? Right. I think that just plays into our, our sort of like American, like just feed, entertain, make it very palatable and understandable, boil it down. Um, I, I like that this is something that I'm going to have to go back to and wrestle with, that there's paragraphs. I'm just like, okay. There was like, I had to look up words, mm-hmm. like insouciance. I had to look that up too. You know what it means? Yeah. No. Indifference. Indifference, Indifference, yeah, yeah. I it, it was one of those words that I think I probably look it up every year. I was like, I need, I need to start using that word in my everyday language. I love mm-hmm. that. I was like, he used it twice. I'm like, oh, jeez, okay. Mm-hmm. I feel like you're just flexing on me right now, Newhouse. It's one of the benefits of reading it on the Kindle, which I'm not doing this year, but I have before, because then you can just push the word. And oh yeah. Give you the, the oh, that's neat. Yeah, that's cool. But I'm reading in, in my hardback here. Um, yeah, th- this is this is a difficult one, and, and you said something that I think is worth mentioning is like you said trying to make sense of it I think it's fair we should always be comfortable with being uncomfortable with these things right we can't make sense of any of this yeah like, he talks about in here earlier on and we've used it before like we everything we know about God we know by analogy right there's a glimmer of our actual understanding even St. Augustine Right. Yeah. What is Thomas Aquinas famous for? This man writes the greatest theological treatise in the history of mankind. He's probably the smartest human being that's ever walked the face of the earth. Yeah, yeah. And he tries to burn it all at the yeah. end because he says it's all just straw. Yeah. Because <laughs> so well, you, 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 he had a mystical experience. Did you know that detail? Yeah. yeah like he had this. He was he was writing a treatise on the Eucharist, and he has this mystical experience where he's like, like had a taste of the glory that he up to this point had really only been writing about and contemplating. And that's when he came back. He said, all I've written is just straw. Like at the end of all of his hundreds of thousands of words on God, he's like, in the end, it's all just blah, blah, blah. Um, 
compared to like what he actually is in and of himself. But like as Catholics, we have to hold that that tension between like, and yet he has legitimately revealed things in a very legitimate way that gives us a real purchase on the reality of God. But we have to always have a sort of intellectual, spiritual humility to recognize that if there's a similarity, the dissimilarity is always infinitely greater than any similarity that, that exists there. Um, so, yeah, it makes sense that we would wrestle with this. Like, what we're wrestling with is this pro- this proposal that God became man and that on the cross, God was crying out to God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Quoting Psalm 22, which we'll get into, I'm sure. Right. 22 or 122? 22. 22. Mm-hmm. Um, like, what? What? Like how how do you how do you piece that? To, did he like sp- split personality disorder? Did he suddenly become two people? Right. Like is Jesus not really God? Like wh- how do we make sense of this? So there's that going on in this chapter. There's this whole notion, this whole concept. We it, the title of the chapter is dereliction, which is again one of those great SAT words, you know. Um, and uh, like, what is that speaking to about, like, being utterly bereft? I love the images he uses of, like, what does it mean to be derelict on, on uh, page, uh, what is it, 104, I think. Um, he says, uh, uh, like, a, like a derelict boat cast up on the shore, like a dog carcass laying by the roadside. There, here is something no longer of any account. It is forsaken, abandoned, thrown aside, roadkill. <laughs> like painting an image of like this is who Jesus is on the cross but then he also gets into um, like this is him entering into the dereliction of the world um, I love the history that he pulls in this chapter and it does tie with the whole naked public square thing like the the pulling tide like the whole faith just the, like recedes mm-hmm. from the culture um, yeah yeah he talks about so going on that uh, just past where you are he talks about uh, what, what page are you on? Uh, on 104 we're going to uh, try and give you more page references so if you're following along if you want to jot down notes or whatever yeah so he talks about this disenchantment of the world yeah that was great which is great and, and I think this is really this is, this is really apt for just the world that we're living in right, right now especially um whether it is the ironic liberalism of tenured professors cleverly deconstructing reality or whether it is the popular peddling of New Age spiritualities, it's a matter of telling fairy tales. And no matter how many fairy tales we tell, we know that they are fairy tales. They cannot re-enchant the world. Something has been lost. And there is that... What We've talked about, you know, we've referenced like Hitler and Pol Pot and Stalin several times in here, and it's because Newhouse does. Mm-hmm. And he came of that age, right? So he was born in the late 30s. So he grew up. Oh, wow. I never even, yeah. Yeah. So he grew up, and he talks about it even in this chapter, like every street that he grew up on, That's, they're yeah. all named after World War One battles. And that really is the inflection point in history. This is when the lights went out, as they said. Yeah. You know, and never to be relit in their life. And that's where... I remember... I'm 40 almost. No. I remember... I am. No. Yeah. So I remember growing up, and World War II veterans were a regular visitor to our classrooms. Wow. I met Holocaust survivors that yeah. came to speak to us. Like, that that connection to that utter evil, that real 
point in history in where people face. go, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Yeah. Right? Like, I remember that. And I wonder if there's a, a disconnect from the generation that's younger me today that didn't know those people like we did. Yeah. And we've lived through, I've had this discussion with my friend John McCabe a couple of times. We've lived through this world that there's no parallel to it in history. This age of the last, call it 30, 40 years of real like economic prosperity in the United States, relative peace. 9-11 was a major inflection point, but it wasn't a world war Yeah, by any means. Yeah, no. And people that think, like, this is how things are, it's not. This is not how history has been. Yeah. And there are still many people alive today that know that's not true, that can cry out, like, God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But they're the ones, that generation that has in a lot of ways, like the offspring of that generation is the complete faithless, apathetic, nothing generation that we see now, right? We always talk about the rise of the nuns, the uh, N-O-N-E-S. People that have no faith whatsoever. And that's what Newhouse, I think, is getting at here. We're in a disenchanted world now. Well, do you think that, like, so I think think the whole World War I thing is is a huge thing that I don't know if I was really keen keen on or cued into this too much... uh, so, I don't know, a couple years ago, reali- just realizing that, like, yeah, we are just, we're, what we are swimming in today is just all downstream from the history that came before us, right? And just not really, I don't think it was until I really saw that movie, 1917, mm-hmm. right? Which you saw that, right? Yep. Holy smokes. Did I really begin to, I think, glimpse that, like, that was the suicide of Europe, mm-hmm. right? Like, it was coming into this century that was, as he says, it was like this sort of progressive ascendancy. There was this, this you know, on the heels of the Enlightenment and the Industrial Revolution and things were just getting better and people's lives were getting better and everything was going to be getting better, right? Mm-hmm. The whole very notion, the whole progressive notion of things getting better and heading towards some direction is itself a gift of the Judeo-Christian worldview, the Judeo-Christian sort of mythic narrative that this is like God is the God of history and he's moving us towards a direction it's not this cyclical, endless cycle of, you know, stuck in the, the, the whims of the gods, but we're moving somewhere. Then you have this, like, as he says, for a few yards of earth, mm-hmm. like, Europe blew its head off. Right. And, I mean, the, the number of, I mean, think about the decimated family culture that it, that it created, both between World War I and World War II, and, like, like if if John Paul II is right, which he is, that the family is the 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 basic building block of society, it's the nucleus of the cell of society being the marriage. If it's the it's the cradle of love, it's the school of love, it's where like children are first tasting the icon of God the Father through their own parents, and like you can just see how this absolutely demolished um, their. Uh, ability to like believe in a higher purpose and power. And I love how he says like, um, like there should have been people crying out throughout the 20th century. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But they had drained God from, from culture. Like there should have been an Eli, Eli Lama Sabachthani crying out, but they, they had pulled God out of the world. Right. And I'm not a Nietzsche expert, but he goes into Nietzsche. Yeah. 
And that's Nietzsche's whole idea of the last man, right? Like the the, the guy who still hasn't gotten the news. Yeah. God's dead. Yeah. Right? And we killed him. And we killed him. Yeah. And you don't need to care about that anymore. Like we've solved that problem, right? Yeah. God became a non-question. He, he became a non-issue. He's not there. Don't, don't bother. Right? Yes. Yeah, on 108, he says something, and you just preached on this recently. He says the attitude is one of practical atheism and assumed denialism. Yeah. It's not so much thought about or even explicitly stated. Of course we live in a meaningless world that came into existence by accident. We'll go out by accident. And yet, like the last man from Nietzsche, we insist that our lives have meaning. And they do, we insist, because we say that they do. This is a disposition, a way of being in the world that is immune to the drama of the cross. He talks about that practical atheism. Maybe you want to go into that. This was one of your homilies yeah. recently. And it really, it really hit me because I'm... <laughs> we're honest with ourselves. We're all practical atheists in a lot of ways. Yeah, so the this whole concept of practical atheism is just this, like, okay, so you might say that you're a theist, you might say you're a Christian, but what does your life actually attest to? Like, do you live um, as though God was a real fact, right? Um, I mean... Imagine someone walking around saying that they are married. Um, you say like, "Hey, what's what's your what's your wife's like favorite food?" You're like, "I, I don't know." <laughs> like, when was the last time you talked to her? Oh, gosh, it's probably been a year since my last conversation with her. Do you, you ever like? Have you ever guys gotten in fights? I mean, I'm mostly a good person. Like, I don't really need to say sorry all that often. And um, like, do you ever? Like, spend time with your wife? I mean, like, when I get up in the morning a little bit and when I go to, like, before I go to bed at night and, like, I'll maybe say something to her. Like, you would just think that, like, this guy doesn't know what it means to be married. Right. Right? There's a lot of Christians who walk around like that. That, like, they walk around um, as if God has nothing actually to do with every moment of your life. Um and it's like you you remember on Sunday mornings like oh yeah there's God and you just kind of like wave to him and you're like okay I'll see you in a week and uh, you're off and you just kind of live your life um, yeah you might have like some moral guidance from you know the values you picked up in Catholic school but like it's not a real pressing thing right um, yeah that's what he, that's what he means by this whole practical atheism bit yeah and. The moral guidance thing, I think, is interesting. I have a note. I forget where it is. We'll probably come to it later. But he goes into this quite a bit in here about, and we'll get to it, the, uh, the idea of Jesus is, is doing, like, Jesus is what he does. Oh, yeah. And it's his his telos, right? It is what he is created to, or not created, Jesus wasn't created, but it's what he came, came to into to the do, world to do. Right? And so, um, and he talks about, this is a truth, not that we, it's not my truth or your truth, it's just like the truth as Christians. And I, I was thinking about that, like, Christianity, we are not, it is not just a moral framework. Like, it, Christianity has a moral framework that we are supposed to live by. But it's not just like how to not live a nice life. That's not what it is. It is, there is a, a claim to be made that this man who cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me, was God in the flesh and literally died and rose again. Mm-hmm. It's not about are you? Do you help old ladies cross the street? Yeah, like, that's a that's downstream from the fact that this 
man did this thing. Right, right. Yeah, and uh, so to this whole business, though, of like, I love this. This is still on 108, that, that like Christians have contemplated. I love this. Christians have contemplated, and they keep in the center of their focus the worst thing that has happened, which is the death of God, right? Not Like, nothing worse has happened. Um, and I was having a conversation with some friends recently who were ministering to, or just, they were having dinner with some of their evangelical friends who were still bothered by the fact that we still have, that Catholics have a crucifix mm-hmm. uh, in the center of our, you know, worship space and in, in our sanctuaries. Um, I was thinking about that. That came to mind when I was reading this paragraph that long before, so he references this this poet, that was a poet, right? Arnold? Yeah, Matthew Arnold. Matthew Arnold, who has this uh, this image of the withdrawal of of faith from the culture like a receding tide. Um Christians contemplated what it means that God has died. Imagine the worst. The worst that could possibly happen has already happened. Far beyond plague or nuclear annihilation or the withering of the... Oh, gosh. Mm. The withering of the last flower or the death of the last child, it happened a certain Friday afternoon outside the walls of Jerusalem. There we turned on the one who embodied all the light, all the love, and all the hope that ever was or ever will be, this is what we did to God. In the unflinching realism of Christian faith, there is nothing to be done about it. There is no undoing it. There is only the possibility of forgiveness. Mm-hmm. Like, sitting with that, I think, is so profoundly important. Because um, it's a claim about also my life, right? All the bad things that have happened to me, they're subjectively bad for me. They were subjectively bad, you know, bad things that happened to me, but the worst thing happened 2000 years ago. Like, like when I fall, I've never fallen so far that Christ did not fall farther than me. Like when I am suffering, I've never suffered so much that Christ's suffering was not already anticipating mine. It happened 2000 years ago. Like not to say like it's all an uphill from there, but like, um, ah, it's just so powerful. And that's, going back to what I was saying before, like why I think this is the most human of the seven words, it is that this is Jesus, if Jesus is who he says he is, and he truly becomes man, he has to experience that that unbridgeable, other than through him, yeah. gap between us as the fallen creature and and the Father, right? And that's what he's doing here. He's, To an extent, he's quoting himself, right? If the Bible's the Word of God, he's quoting Psalm 22. Yeah. And yeah. crying out, which I always think is interesting, the Gospel, they say he cried out. Yeah, yeah. I, that was right at the very beginning of this chapter. He yeah. says, the, the Greek word suggests that he screamed with yeah. a loud cry. Yeah. Oh, gives so, you chills. I love, th- this was the line, this, I mean, there's a lot of lines in this chapter where I was like, holy smokes, like, I'll tattoo that on my, my, my body. To be sure, at the heart of darkness, there is also hope, because the worst word is not the last word. 
Mm-hmm. There's so many like good double entendres in there. Like the worst word of like the seven words of Christ, mm-hmm. right? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Is also not the last word, but the worst word, like the cross speaking. I have claimed him. I've defeated him. I've swallowed death or I've swallowed life. I have won, says death, right? Says Satan, says the enemy. That worst word, that utter calamity is not the last word. The last word is resurrection, right? right. The last word is victory. The last word's like, as, as Tolkien says, he coined the phrase, you catastrophe. Have you heard this before? Mm-mm. That we have in English, right? Catastrophe speaks of like a sudden turn of calamity. Like it's suddenly horrible. He says, we don't have in English a word that speaks of this sudden, like, reversal of fortune where it's suddenly unbelievably good. So he says, the resurrection is the, is the authentic you catastrophe. Isn't that great? Oh, that's great. That's a good one. Hawking's awesome. When's he going to be a saint? I don't, I don't know. I would, I would yeah, love that's that. A, that's a very different podcast. Yeah. Um, yeah, uh, oh my gosh, I was just going to say, so the the whole idea of it not being the last word, um, but it being the worst word, and the one that we can identify with the most, and so maybe we should talk a little bit about, like, the, that's the whole psalm, right? Like, what do, there's, there's more to that psalm than just, my God, my God, why have you right. forsaken me, right? right? If you read the whole 22nd Psalm, and Newhouse quotes it here. On what page? Uh, I'm on page 112. Oh, yeah, yeah, right there. Um, he, and he's talking about, you know, the, the whole, like, the tone of voice, for maybe, that, that Christ was using. But but note that even, apparently, uh, excuse me, but note that even the ap- apparently absent God is still my God. Uh, that was just my like, God. that melted me. Right? He was mine before. May he not be again? Recall, too, that Psalm 22 does not end on the note of desolation. This goes to what you keep talking about. It's like the forsakenness is not the end. There is this at verse 24. For he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. Isn't that great? There, there's a song the there for you. The affliction of the afflicted. And he has not hid his face from him, but has heard when he cried to him. And then the conclusion, posterity shall serve him. Men shall tell of the Lord to the coming generation and proclaim his deliverance to a people yet unborn, that he has wrought it. Yeah, he has wrought it. God has done it. It will become evident in retrospect that even in the hour of darkness and death, he was doing it. I love, like, I love when you said that this, perhaps this word is the most human of the words. This, this, so this, I, I think this on 112 is so beautiful that, now, having drunk the dregs of the cup, he cries out as mortals beyond number have cried out in their agony. And like, as I've cried out in my agony, as you've cried, like, what the, the memory that came to mind for me, so like, I have an autoimmune eye disease. And when I was a freshman in high school, I was home um, late one night in my, in my parents' house. I was sitting on my parents' bed and I just was rubbing my eyes. I was like four months out from having this pretty intense surgery. And I had done something where I effectively deflated my eye. Mm. It was, it was horrible. I I was instantaneously blind. Um, at like 1030 night, my mom had to drive me up to the, um, the Cleveland clinic and the emergency attending eye physician there had, you know, the bedside manner of Dr. Kevorkian. Um, (laughs) and he just like was looking at me like 14 year old Patrick, 
like in utter fear and terror and just was like, well, you know, you are going blind, right? And like, just, it was so, mm. it, it was so painful. Like that was the memory that came back when I read that, just like, Jesus, you were crying with me in that cry. Like when I was screaming out, like from my agony, as mere mortals beyond number have cried out in their agony, as you've cried out in your agony, whatever it's been in your story, like Jesus is doing it. Like not to be, not to a familiar or to a beloved, not to father, but to God out there somewhere radically other, radically indifferent. Cause that's what it feels like in those moments. You're like, where the heck are you? Right. Do you care? Do you see? Like Jesus enters into that experience, like not pretending to not feigning it, not right. being like, I'm just going to say this line because, you know, they need me to say it. But, like, yeah. he feels it. In the depth of his humanity, he feels it. And he's do like he's doing something about that alienation by entering into it, which is crazy. Yeah, Newhouse says a couple of times in here about, like, he's not play-acting here, right? Yeah. We're, this is not, we're not going through the motions to do this. And we're not also not blind to the fact of what's going to happen that Sunday morning to come. But it has to be this way, right? It, he, on 115, Newhouse quotes uh, Jesus in the Gospels, For this I was born, and for this I have come into this world. He says, hear him say it through clenched teeth, perspiring almost in a whisper. Oh, so good. Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, that totally changes it. Right. Not with like a composed, soft British accent. Yes, exactly. And the crystal blue eyes and the perfectly... Quaffed uh, yeah. blonde hair, <laughs> blonde dried hair. Yeah, yeah. No, he's um. Gosh, he, like hear him say it through clenched teeth, perspiring almost in a whisper. Oh, like we are. We we are invited all over and over again. I love how he brings it up that like the way the gospel writers write about the write the gospels is so like Spartan and bare and devoid of so many. I don't know, psychologizing details that we moderns would love and prefer. But I think that gives us the space to engage the text with our imaginations, to have it pop to 3D. Like Mm -hmm. that, like that's, that's the real, that's, that's the real right there. Hearing him say it through clenched teeth. So powerful. Yeah. I love that. That was amazing. Yeah, it's, uh, and you know, it goes back to Jesus the night before in the Garden of Gethsemane. You know, Father, you can take this cup from my lips. Like, he, he knows what's coming. Can you imagine? Yeah. Of course we can't imagine. This this starts to lead into the whole, uh, like, what happens on Holy Saturday, right? Like, this forsakenness. When, when we talk about forsakenness, there's the element of, like, God, where are you in the world? There's so much evil. But we're talking, they're talking real forsakenness. We're talking hell. What does that mean to be completely cut off? And there's so many different visions that people throughout the ages have had of like, what what is that like? The descent into hell, which we say in the Apostles' Creed, right? And is, was it, you've talked many times about this rescue mission, right? And there's, mm-hmm. there, there's great artwork of Jesus striding in and crushing Satan and he's grabbing an Adam and Eve first and he's bringing them all out and it's like the triumphalist Christ mm. ransacking hell but then there's on the other side and Newhouse talks about sitting there on the, the long mourner's bench as he calls it mm. right of the forsaken the people who have just made 
the ultimate bad choice and bad, all of bad choices. And he had to go to that extent. Jesus had to go to the lowest of the low if he's really going to take all of it into his uh, humanity. Mm. Mm. Oh, so powerful. The um, One of the powerful images I had last year during Holy Week on Holy Saturday was meditating on how the um, how the devil experienced Jesus striding into hell um, and how the demons saw it because they're like wait no we we just killed that guy he's supposed to he's supposed to be brought down into our domain like limp and weak and terrified and shackled and here he comes striding like he owns the place brilliant and shining in glory and they realize what they've done and um he just like like the sunrise i don't know how many of you have ever like sat outside to watch the sunrise in the morning that there's no great battle like between the night and the day like the night is not hanging on for dear life in the <laughs> The sun effortlessly dispels the night long before the sun even rises. Like the sun, the light is just effortlessly brushing past the dark. Um, that's, that's, that's his descent into hell, um, into the place of utter God forsakenness. Um, yeah. I love this on 117 back to that notion of the play acting like this script that like we have the unfortunate benefit of 2000 plus years of tradition reflecting on these things and just like yeah this happens and this follows this and this is the next thing that happens after that right we have we know what holy week is well like when holy week happened it wasn't holy week it was just that week you mean they didn't have like extra music and flowers ready for that day yeah no and the hot crust buns no they didn't actually have those uh turns out no um you're allowed to have your hot cross buns. I don't mean to, you know. But he says, The passion narrative is not simply a playing out of a script that begins with the catechism statement that, quote, Jesus died for our sins. His dying is not just a necessary preliminary to the good news of the resurrection, like we think of it today, right? The cross is not just what happened to him. This is what you were saying earlier. It is who he is. We preach Christ crucified, Paul declares. The God whom we worship is a crucified God. The downplaying of the death of Christ in Christian preaching and piety is a close cousin to the denial of his death. And the denial of his death is a close cousin to the denial of our own death. Mm. Woof. Yeah. (laughs) So, that that starts to lead into the whole okay so Jesus is he is what he does and uh, Newhouse gets into this whole there's a whole section of this chapter about a life's intention right and the implications like what was the intention of Jesus's life why did he come here again it says it over and over and over I wish Newhouse would count it from the foundation of the world from the foundation of the world this was not a rescue mission. Like, it is a rescue mission for us, but it was not a last-ditch effort of the Trinity going, oh, gosh, what are we going to do? We weren't expecting this. Right. It was always planned. This was why he was born. There's a there's a song that uh, Jackson Brown wrote called Born to Die, mm. right? I mean, it's, it's a theme that's common in Christianity. Yeah. You hear it at Christmas time. 
It's like, oh, it's a happy Christmas song. But it's really, no, he was, this is why. He was born to do this. Yeah. And yeah. it's the only way to it. It wasn't like Jesus was going to die of old age and then rise from the dead and go, right. hey, heaven's open now. Yeah. It's not how it works. Yeah. It's like he was born to suffer this God-forsakenness. Death. The worst possible death that mankind could devise. Yeah. No, it makes you wonder if they had had the technology, like, would they have put Christ in a gas chamber if that was mm. available at the time? Wow. And you could argue that they would have. Yeah. Right? Even He even quotes that in here. I didn't mean to make this, but... Uh, uh, it, which Pope was it? Was it John the 23rd? Newhouse talks about when he saw... Oh, the, yeah. Um, the, the, the pictures of the, the, the Jews being bulldozed, their bodies into the being mass graves into the mass graves. He cried out, there's the body of Christ. Oh, yeah. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Ugh. Well, I, I, the, like the... Like, his mission and his identity are, are one, right? We think that Christ is... A lot of people think that Christ is Jesus' last name, right? Yeah, <laughs> Joseph Christ married to Mary Christ and their son, little baby Jesus Christ. <laughs> Christ Christ is the, the English rendering of Christos in Greek, which means which is the Greek translation of Mashiach in Hebrew, which means anointed one or Messiah, right? So he is his name and his like Jesus Christ it is it is one and the same. His identity and his mission are the same. That he did not uh, I love how you said that. He didn't just come to like live a human life and then die in you know in old age and then rise from the dead. Like, let's get to heaven, you know? <laughs> Like, he came to be the lamb, right? It's the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. That's what, you know, from the book of Revelation. Um, from before the foundation of the world, Jesus is the lamb standing as though slain. That, like, yeah, he's not, like, this isn't like a second thought. This is, this is who he is. And it's present from the very beginning. Like, the, the wood of the manger is, is the, it's this, it's this cross in seminal form. Like, that's what it is. Like and he's wrapped in these swaddling clothes. It's not just like a baby onesie. It's that's how you took care of the sacrificial lambs. If you were a shepherd out in the Judean hill country, you would wrap lambs, male lambs, mm-hmm. newborn lambs, in these cloths so they wouldn't have broken bones, so they could be sold into the temple for the Passover sacrifice. He comes to be the lamb. The, like so, then Newhouse gets into this question. Okay. Does it negate the power of what he did, the fact that he willed what the Father willed for him, right? Yeah, he talks about how boring we think it is. The fact (laughs) that Jesus was uh, of the same will of the Father, you know, step by inexorable step. Yeah. And this goes to the last episode we did. Mary was the same way, right? Oh, yeah. Again, perfect conformity to the Father's will. Says uh, He says on 132 there, Why do so many think the glory of the cross is diminished because Jesus' will and the will of the Father were perfectly one? I expect it's for the, uh, for the same reason that, as we discussed earlier, many people say that the original fall, the fall in the Garden of Eden, into sin was a fall upward rather than downward. Modern consciousness has no higher interest than itself. And he talks about how our... Our attention is fixated on interests, motives, ambiguities, and the hidden designs of the conflicted self. Yeah. Right? The unconflicted self is boring. Jesus is boring. Oh, yeah. Yeah, we think that, like, wouldn't it have been, like, a better story if 
Like Jesus had to battle the Father's will. And this, I mean, you can, again, I have great sympathy for heretics. Right? Like, Because mm-hmm. you, you can see in the, like, the Garden of Gethsemane, does it not appear as though Jesus' will is set against the divine will that he's acquiescing to? Um, if this, like, let this chalice pass from me. Like, is that not perhaps like, I was just thinking about this now, is that not perhaps like the first, I don't know, um, note that becomes the cry of dereliction? Mm. What a way to think about it. Like, is it not perhaps, yeah, his first like, I'm entering into that very human space of, I would prefer that this not be what I'm going to go through. Like, I would so prefer that this child of mine lives. I would so prefer that my friend's cancer would go away. I would so prefer that this job would stay mine. I would so prefer. I think it's, it's, it's gotta be one in the same, from the same space of, of his heart. Yeah. I mean, going with that, it's even, and I've never thought of this until you just said it, but we are, I, I think most, I certainly myself, when I think of that, let this cup pass from my lips, it's more like, let this, like, I don't want to go through the crucifixion. But is it really, is it, I don't want to feel that sense of forsakenness. Yeah. I don't want to go visit hell. Yeah. I know how awful hell, Jesus knows full well, right, the yeah. abandonment of being completely separated from God, from himself. Like, is that what, is that the cup that he wants to pass? Yeah. Like, I can handle the crucifixion. It's the, it's the God forsakenness. When I was, when I was in the Holy Land back in 2017, we, we got to pray in, it's called the, the Basilica of All Nations, which is housed over the Garden of Gethsemane, where they have the rock in front of the altar where Jesus agonized. And I, when I was praying in there, I had this powerful, powerful prayer experience where I, I like, it started off by hearing these drips hitting the stone uh, of this rock. And then I just saw this blood coming down from Je- the tip of Jesus' nose and falling off his nose and landing like a pool on the rock. And the enemy s- like comes in close and he just says, like, so will their hearts be. Like, I think part of the real agony of the suffering is is the suffering of unrequited love and just feeling like like going back to the the temptation in the desert that the the enemy like it was almost as if he said I'll let I'll let you have all of them if you just bow down and worship me. Mm-hmm. And here in the garden he's like he's just saying they're not going to receive your gift. They're not going to receive what you're sacrificing. Mm-hmm. Um Oh, so powerful. We are, um, we're already at time almost. It's, oh my uh, gosh. It's, I know. It, it's incredible. But there, there are a couple things I think we should point out because yeah. we haven't really, we, we talk about Jesus and that he is what he does. And Newhouse, he goes on to, again, what does this mean for you, for me, for everybody who's listening? Like, uh, what's the, the telos of our life? Right. So that word tells, you've used it twice now, it yeah. comes from the Greek word, which means end or final thing, like teleology. Um, it's a philosophical phrase, but yeah, go ahead. Yeah, so it, it's this whole idea of like, it's not a matter, I'm 136, it's not a matter of doing one's own thing, of doing what one wants to do. It is doing what one must do. 
Put somewhat paradoxically, it is choosing to do what one has no choice but to do. You did not choose me, but I chose you, is what Jesus says, right? It's that whole idea of like our lives as Christians, and honestly, even as non-Christians, right, we would think that their ultimate road would end up where we are. That's what we believe. But our lives as Christians, it is not about for me determining what my future is and all these questions, all this time that we spend, like what am I going to be when I grow up and I'm going to make four and five year plans and blah, blah, blah. Like that, that's all fine and good. But really, our whole life is a discernment of how do I become what God called me to be, which is ultimately just to be his son. Like yeah. you are my beloved son. Yeah. Right? And that that's the whole telos of our life is to be that. All the other things are peripheral to that. Yeah. I, yeah, I, this is, I, I love this, this, this whole notion here that like, this is the heart of like the cultural battle right here over like the battle between Christianity and the anti-Christian sort of dictatorship of relativism and subjectivism that's in our culture that like, like the, the good life is the self-actualized life, the self-determined life. Like that stands in stark contrast to what we claim, what Christ has revealed to us, that no, there is a something you are meant to be, right? There is an end. I love how he says this on 128. I am a truth to be discerned, not a choice to be decided. Mm-hmm. That like my freedom, our capacity for freedom is not the first thing that defines us. I am not a freedom. I am a self. I am a person, right, who happens to be free, Um like the freest person is the one who actually chooses what he actually wants. Mm. Like that's why Mary was the freest person because the, the telos, the end, the finality of every human soul of every human heart is to become like a housing to, to house the eye of Christ. That's the, te- that's the telos. That's the finality of every human person to become like, as St. Paul says, it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Right. He leads into this whole piece about martyrdom. Oh, yeah. And, but it's exactly that, right? It's not it, what Paul just said. It doesn't necessarily mean, like, martyrdom that, like, I'm going to be killed for the faith, as, unfortunately, there are still Christians being killed for their faith today. But what are the little small martyrdoms? Like, the, the dying to myself... Which actually is perfectly what we're supposed to be doing in Lent, right? Yeah, is the, Lent is practicing the, death. The daily martyrdoms that I'm supposed to suffer, again, to that final end of what I am supposed to be. Whether it is this denial of some pleasure of mine, whether it's the denial of what I always thought my dream was, if my, my dream job, or whatever it is, you know. There are so many little martyrdoms that we have to go through as Christians so that we can, and hopefully we don't get killed for the faith. Of course, if you do, it's straight to heaven, so it's not the worst thing in the not world. Not the worst thing that could happen. <laughs> but, um, yeah, yeah, so I, I love his whole exposition of martyrdom and what that means. He says uh, on 137, the moral life entails the readiness to suffer martyrdom, even though, happily, most of us are not required to die for our witness. And then he quotes the Roman, uh, the, the Latin poet, Juvenal. And I think oh, this is uh, great. Oh, boy. Consider it the greatest of crimes to prefer survival to honor uh, and out of love of physical life. Uh, Let me read that again. Consider it the greatest of crimes to prefer survival to honor 
and out of love of physical life to lose the very reason for living. That feels like a very prescient quote for our current I, times. Yeah, I do not. I literally gave up talking about COVID for Lent, but I don't know how you read that and not think of the last year and just the obsession with survival yeah. that um, we have had as a world. That yeah. the end in of itself is to just extend this life yeah. forever. And I, I make other notes of that too, but when you, you think of all these big tech billionaires that are trying to work on these like everlasting life pills and yeah, stuff, yeah. that is not what it's at about, folks. Like, the telos of our life is not to be here for a thousand years. Oh, please, God, Newsflash, no. yeah. that is not the telos of our life. Yeah. All right, so I want to bring us back on 142. Maybe we'll land it here unless yeah. you got something you want to add. But the... I've got 50 things, but we don't... I know, I do too. I had so I had like five pages of notes. Yes. All right, so 152, or 142 rather, the... Um, I'm just going to read a good chunk of this just because it's so beautiful. I'm just going to sit back and yeah. listen. And so we are brought back to, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? God is present in his apparent absence. God's absence is embodied in the body of Israel and in the extension of that body, the new Israel, which is the church. God is present in the forsaken so that nobody, nobody ever, nobody anywhere at any time under any circumstance is forsaken. Not anywhere? Not under any circumstance? Not in hell? Here we are at the edge of speculative, but without good biblical warrant and not without the reassuring company of the formidable Hans Urs von Balthasar. On Good Friday, says von Balthasar, Christ descended into the heart of human desolation. He himself experienced damnation as he entered the uttermost limits of humanity's alienation from God. Mm -hmm. Like, that's what he's doing on Holy Saturday. Mm -hmm. Christians must hope that hell is is empty, that the mercy of God reaches also those who will damnation for themselves, that God draws them back despite themselves into the heart of love. Balthazar writes... Here lies hope for the person who, refusing all love, damns himself. Will not the person who wishes to be totally alone find beside him in Sheol the someone who is lonelier still, the son forsaken by the father, who will prevent him from experiencing his self-chosen hell to the end? It is a question, but it is an inescapable question that drives to the hope at the heart of the horror. If, as St. Paul says, Christ, who knew no sin, was made sin for us. Can there be any sin he did not bear there on the cross? If the answer is no, as I believe it must be, then even the utterly forsaken are not bereft of the company of the utterly forsaken one, the Son of God, and therefore not bereft of hope. Thus, even the will to damnation is damned, and thereby defeated by the one for whom and in whom damnation is not allowed the last word. Chills. Up, down. Uh, up, down, side to side, everywhere. Rich John Newhouse, I hope you're praying for us. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. There, and there, there's there's so much we couldn't get into in this chapter. I think this is the densest of all of them. Yeah, the so book. far, yeah, for sure. Um, so uh, this was awesome, Father. Next, next week, the fifth word, I thirst. I can't it's wait. It's my favorite chapter. I'm not going to give it away. My favorite words written in the English language are from this chapter. Wow. I will share them next week. 
and willful. Jesus thirsts for the forsaken. Oh, mercy. Well, thanks for joining us, everybody. And um, God bless you. We'll see you next time. We'll, we'll, we'll see you next time? How do we end the... I don't, I don't know. know. We'll, uh, we'll speak to you next time. <laughs> you will listen to us next time. <laughs> you will listen. All right, we're done. We're landing it. God bless. Bye.